I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To help us get to the truth of the matter about food insecurity in the United States, we have with us Caitlin Welsh, who's the director of our food security program at CSIS. Caitlin, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Last year, we were talking about food insecurity You know, when the pandemic first broke out and we were talking about stocking pantries and empty grocery shelves and, you know, fears over, you know, contracting COVID via food and just going, doing our everyday stuff, like going to the grocery store, where have we come from there and where are we today? Thanks, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me back on the podcast. Certainly, I think it's really remarkable to reflect on where we were a year ago. I can say for you know the, the decade plus that I've been covering food security policy, I have never seen such coverage in U.S. news of the issue. So we had so many pandemic-related fears we were dealing with this time last year. A year since then, we are certainly not out of the woods. I think the most important headline at this point is we will likely see historic levels of food insecurity in the United States and around the world last year and this year. What are some of the numbers like? I mean, like you said, we've never seen this in the news cycle in the United States quite like this in modern times where, you know, you put on the evening news and you see, you know, lines that are just ridiculously long and scary and, you know, they're they're in every community. It's not, you know, inner cities or rural, they're suburban. It's everywhere where you see these lines for people lined up in their cars for for miles sometimes just to get you know food to get through the week what are some of the numbers we're looking at look like yeah absolutely i think you made a great point there which is that the food insecurity isn't discriminating by zip code you hear people who are running some of the biggest food food banks in the country saying that even the wealthiest counties in the in this country have people who are become customers at food banks unfortunately So when it comes to the numbers, we won't have USDA's official tally for food insecurity in 2020 until this coming September. So there's always a lag when it comes to to processing big data like that. What we do have, and this is a, a really excellent source of information for all sorts of impacts of the pandemic, what we do have is weekly and biweekly assessments of impacts of COVID done by the Census Bureau. And one of the things that they've been measuring is essentially it's a proxy for food insecurity in our country. And so Every week or every two weeks since the pandemic hit, since last April, the Census Bureau has been publishing this data. It's important to note that what the Census Bureau is measuring is, in a sense, a more extreme measure of food insecurity than what than, than what USDA is measuring. So you can't necessarily do apples to oranges comparison. And also, the Census Bureau is measuring experience of food insecurity every you know by the week, whereas USDA is looking across a whole year. But the numbers are staggering from what the Census Bureau is showing us. The peak that we saw throughout the pandemic was at the end of December, when over 15%, nearly 16% of families with children weren't able to procure enough food to feed their families. So that was a peak. It's been coming down, but it hasn't been coming down steadily since then. 16% of American families? With children. 
Wow. Sometimes are often didn't have enough food to feed their families. And again, that's a stricter measure. And that's just for that two week period. What the USDA looks at their question is at any time in the last 12 months, have you been food insecure? Census Bureau is saying just in the last two weeks, have you experienced this? It's pretty extreme. It's shocking. And something that's been consistent throughout the pandemic is that we're seeing much higher rates among different groups of people. So that's that was the average rate at the end of December. The most recent numbers show that all households that's fallen since then, so it's just about 12, 12% for all households with children, lower than that for white households. For Hispanic households, 18% of families with children couldn't get enough food. For Black households, over 20%. So it's significant disparities by race um, and also by gender. I think it's pretty, pretty important to note that throughout the pandemic, you've seen that women, especially in households with children, have been much more food insecure than men. So, you know, we know some of the obvious causes of this, but what do you see as some of the causes that might not really, you know, be on the surface level? Why is this happening? Why are we, you know, a country with so much food and so many natural resources and so much wealth? Why are we seeing this now? It's such staggering numbers. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And again, I, I think it's, it's important to put this in context. When we see USDA come out with their official numbers in September, I'm expecting those to be the, the highest number of individuals this century and the highest annual increase. So we won't have seen numbers like this in, in our recent memory, certainly. So I, you know, I'll borrow from a researcher up at CUNY in New York who says that food insecurity in our country is an income problem and not a food problem. So I think it's really important to note that Despite the fact that we had disruptions in food supply chains at the beginning of the pandemic, that's not the, the main cause for food insecurity in our country. It's an income problem. It was before the pandemic, and it certainly is throughout the pandemic. And when you look at projections that, that organizations like Feeding America are putting, are putting out or that the World Food Program is putting out for food insecurity around the whole world, they're all basing their projections on the extent of the economic downturn due to the pandemic. So it's really an income problem, which is what? A food price problem and an unemployment problem and an underemployment problem. And tell me about this. Yeah, absolutely. So it has to do with increases in poverty and increases in unemployment because of the pandemic. It simply meaning that people don't have don't have the money they need to procure the food that they need for their families. And I think that there's an, an important nuance to this, which is that when people's incomes fall, in some cases, the amount of food that they can consume decreases, but more often the types of food that they can consume also, it, it, it it's lesser quality because foods that are more nutritious are also more expensive. So you have decreases in income, and then all of a sudden families have to be consuming food that's just less nutritious. So that also has health impacts and other impacts for the families. This time last year, I think that we were predicting food price spikes in our country that thankfully didn't materialize. But what we have seen is increases in food prices across the board. So compared to last year, we have a, about a 3% increase in a lot of products, and it's an over 5% increase in, in the price of meat products. So what that means for me and you would be if we go to the grocery store and we're paying, say, $6 a pound for ground beef. That means that last year we paid $5.70 a pound. So for people who have kept their jobs through the pandemic, that extra 30 cents isn't going to make a difference. But for people who've lost their jobs or who are relying on federal benefits, or especially families who have children at home, that increase really does make a difference. And how is that going to be, you know, it, it seems like a small amount, but it, when you add it all up, it's really not. So how is that mitigated by the government? Is there a way to deal with it? Well, that's where the increases in SNAP benefits really comes into play. And, and even if it amounts to, you know, whatever it is per month, let's say it's $20 to $40 per month, it really matters right now to have the, the, those extra dollars in your budget to pay for food at a time when 
incomes are being lost and when food prices are increasing. Now, I've seen some of the SNAP statistics, some of the SNAP checks. You know, my wife runs a foundation called the Anchor Fund, which helps women who are victims of domestic violence and helps people who are on, you know, eligible for SNAP benefits all the time. And when I hear about the number that's behind the SNAP checks, it, it seems so shockingly low. Like, how can you possibly feed your family with the SNAP benefits? Well, I agree. And also, so there's SNAP um, available to most families. There's the WIC program available for women with infants and children. Enrollment is SNAP and, and SNAP is relatively high. Enrollment in WIC is very low. It's only about 50% of what it could be. But you're right, you know, when you look at federal poverty levels, they're incredibly low. So for a family of five, you know, a, a number of things go into this calculation, but it's if you're living below around 31,000, you're considered to be living in poverty. But anything above that, you're not considered to be living in poverty, which is just seems to be a shockingly low level to be considered impoverished in our country. We're not even talking about, you know, food deserts really, or, you know, things like that. We're talking about just people not being able to afford anything and not being able to gather enough to put, you know, together, you know, even sometimes two or one meals a day for their families. So, so like, how is it that the United States is not able to deal with this in a way that we can, you know, feed our people? I mean, the lines again, you know, we've seen this in the news We've seen the photos, you know, we've even seen it in our own neighborhoods. I mean, as you said, it doesn't discriminate for a region. You know, Washington, D.C., the metropolitan area has, I believe, seven of the 10 richest counties in America. And we've all seen it in our own backyard here. I mean, I've seen the lines in in downtown Bethesda at the fire station. And it's, you know, it's upsetting to see our neighbors lining up to get food. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't want to stray too far off topic, but I think that this is linked to the incomes that people do or don't earn in our country. And I think that that's one of the reasons behind the the reemergence of the debate around, around the minimum wage increase. And I think it's also important to note that the president understands this. So he actually said before he became president, he actually said that what we need is, uh, this is a quote, common sense steps to make sure that people can earn a fair wage to get a good job and be able to pay for their family's food. Yeah. Well, he he definitely understands and he comes from a part of the world where, you know, this isn't foreign to him, you know, both in, in Scranton, Pennsylvania and in Delaware, Wilmington, where he you know, raised his family. So what is the U.S. government's response to this now? We have the American Rescue Plan, but what is it going to do? Yeah. So we had the American Rescue Plan. And before the American Rescue Plan, we had the CARES Act. So I want to say that American Rescue Plan builds on and extends a lot of the good things that happened um, you know, since the start of the pandemic. But there's a number of really important provisions in the American Rescue Plan. Some have to do with SNAP, which is commonly known as food stamps. So it's extending a, a boost in the amount that families can receive. One thing that's really important is actually it's providing money for administrative fees. So in the last administration, we increased the amount of money available for SNAP, but we didn't increase the amount of money to offices around the country and states around the country to deal with much larger caseloads. So I think that steps like that are really common sense. And then also one thing I've been very pleased to see is that USDA is allowing more and more states to allow beneficiaries of SNAP to use those benefits online, which is incredibly important during a pandemic. So about this time last year, only six states around the country allowed SNAP beneficiaries to use those online. Today, 48 states are allowing that. So important um, important improvements to the SNAP program. These improvements are getting a lot of good press by anti-hunger organizations across the country. I also wanna say though, as I said, since food insecurity in our country is an income problem, not a food problem, 
the whole array of benefits to Americans that the American Rescue Plan allows will ultimately take long strides to addressing food insecurity. So eviction protection, for example, all the provisions around eviction protection, the amount of money given through stimulus checks. So as of last week, IRS had sent out 127 million checks. And then most importantly, and most exciting to me are the child tax credits, which will give up to $300 for young children, 250 for those over five per month for families. And estimates show that these could cut child poverty by 45% across the board by more than 50% among black families. So I think that all efforts like these will ultimately go a long way in addressing food insecurity in our country. So what are some of the other things the US government should do? Specifically, what is the White House trying to do now? And is there a coordinator? Should they appoint somebody as a, is, should there be a food czar? Like what, what are some of the recommendations you have going forward with this? Yeah, well, I want to say that we won't improve food security in our country until the economy is back on track and the economy won't be back on track until the pandemic is under control. And so, as I've said in the Data Unpacked video that we did, Americans are doing a lot by, for example, donating to food pantries. That's incredibly important right now, or by supporting common sense policies. But at the end of the day, we all have to do our part and follow CDC guidelines to get the pandemic under control. So I think that the all the efforts the administration is making to expand vaccine access, for example, will ultimately have follow-on effects for food security in our country through economic growth. Apart from that, I've been doing some thinking and I've seen some writing by others too about what else can be happening within the federal government to address food insecurity. And, you know, I think that it's we're, we're at, at an inflection point because we will see historic levels of food insecurity around the world because of the pandemic and in the United States. And we've never seen food insecurity crises happening abroad and at home at the same time. And as we will be positioning ourselves as, as leaders when it comes to global food security, our own challenges at home are on full display for the rest of the world to see. So I think that there's a lot of introspection happening right now within our own country about what, what we can do to address historic levels of food insecurity here, and also disparities in food insecurity, as I was explaining. I'd like to share that about this time last year, I got a phone call from a journalist based in South Asia who called and said, we're seeing miles long lines at food pantries in the United States. Tell us what's happening. We didn't think this was possible in your own country. So when it comes to addressing food insecurity, I think that number one, we need to have a coordinated response. So USDA, I think, does a fantastic job administering SNAP and WIC benefits and the many other programs that they do that are the front line of addressing hunger in our country. But it's not something... I, Given the extent of the problem, I don't think that food insecurity is something that any one department or agency is positioned to address. I think that it takes a coordinated response among, you know, including USDA, but also Department of Transportation to make sure that people have easy access to grocery stores and also to their jobs. Department of Education to make sure that people understand the value of good nutrition. Department of Labor, Veterans Affairs, given high rates of food insecurity among veteran populations, for example. So I think that we need a coordinated response. I have proposed a coordinator at the within the White House, within the Domestic Policy Council. I've seen others propose simply an executive level position, but I think that that would make good sense to coordinate efforts across departments and agencies. So is this something that is possible to tackle within the next four years? Is this something that is an ongoing problem that the executive branch and the United States Congress needs to really, you know, I mean, when I was coming up, there was a select committee on hunger in the Congress. And that select committee was focused on really mostly on international issues. It wasn't really focused on 
domestic issues because we didn't have the kind of hunger in the United States that we're seeing right now. What needs to happen to mobilize? I mean, we all see, again, we all see this right in front of us. And, you know, a lot of people are going to be saying we can't really help other countries until we can figure out, just like with the pandemic, we can't vaccinate other countries until we vaccinate ourselves. How can we help other countries that are starving until we can, you know, figure out a way for our citizens to be, you know, safe and food secure? Yeah. So I think it's something we can get back on track or get on the right track in these next four years. I don't think there's anything we can solve in the next four years. Also because food insecurity or food security is something that people have this status. They're somewhere you know, between food security and food insecure at all points throughout their lifetime. So you might be addressing the challenge in a certain way when children are really young or when they're still in school in a different way once they become adults and may or may not be fit for military service, for example, maybe when they're much older and might be suffering from some kind of non-communicable disease that's related to diet. So there are, you know, these these are problems that need to be addressed throughout people's lifetime. So I think we can set the foundation for a, a common sense coordinated response in, in, you know, these four years that hopefully would be built upon in future administrations. How much is going back to school for children going to help with food insecurity? You know, we we talk about school lunches all the time, even school breakfasts and snacks. Like what, you know, how much is it going to help when our, our children are going to be able to safely return to school full time? Yeah, I think that it will help. I think, though, that USDA did a good job with Congress of anticipating the needs that would arise from children not being in the school and from being at home and not being able to access free breakfast and free lunches. That's one form of benefit that's actually started in the last administration, continued now. It's a it's a benefit for families with children who would have gotten those free meals so they can still get those meals when they're learning at home. But I, I do think that, that, that there will be benefits, obviously, so many benefits once children are back in school. But one thing that I see getting attention is the nutritional value of school meals. So it's, I see this Secretary of Education giving some more attention to that, just like we had in the Obama administration. And he has pointed out, you know, when it comes to diet-related non-communicable diseases like obesity, he's pointed out that the Medicare and Medicaid budget for diabetes alone in our country is greater than the entire budget for USDA annually. I think that he's looking at the importance of of addressing the, the quality of the food that we're serving in schools. So there's a focus on trying to make people healthier. So we don't have as much of a high cost in healthcare, and we can then turn that those funds into something that increases the well-being of the population. Yes, and and I think that the there's a spotlight on this because especially in time that we're experiencing right now during the pandemic, when you see non-communicable diseases like hypertension, like diabetes, obesity, etc., leading to increased rates of morbidity and mortality from COVID nineteen. So so I think that we'll probably see some more activity in that realm. How much of this is a public health exercise in policy versus a social scientist or a political scientist exercise in trying to create a policy that is sustainable? That's an excellent question. I think that that gets to the heart of challenges in food security policy, where I think that we have a tendency to oversimplify problems. And I think when we look at food security, I think that you know, given all the competition for our attention, we might just think food insecurity is existing because there's not enough food there. And so therefore it's a it's a problem for USDA. They need to grow more food, <laughs> produce more food in our country. That's the vastly oversimplified and it doesn't get to the very complex nature of this challenge. It has to do with, of course, the food we produce, but it has to do with so many other things, incomes, the nutritional quality, the follow-on health benefits, so many things. And I think that that is a step that 
food security policy needs to needs to make in the United States and around the world, frankly. I think that there's far too much attention on, on foreign level production and not enough not enough attention on the many other factors that contribute to food security. Are there any programs going on right now that you can point to that are, you know, sort of model programs that states and other, you know, parts of the federal government that can point to as successes that are, you know, something that can be built on? I really do think that the the speed with which we were able to increase benefits and increase enrollment in SNAP and WIC, particularly in SNAP, not so much in WIC, is really deserving of emulation. I think the United States did an excellent job with that. And it's something that we're, we're fortunate to have that program, those safety net programs in place. Most countries around the world don't have those. Looking forward, I'm really hopeful again for the impacts of the monthly benefit to families with children. There's no stipulation in terms of how month, how families have to spend that money. It doesn't have to go for food. It can go for anything. But I think that ultimately, any income increase to families with children will be for the benefit of their food security. That's terrific. Well, what gives you the most cause for optimism going forward? I think it's the increase in attention to this challenge because of the pandemic within our own country. And I think that fortunately, we already had in place a number of events this year globally, through which we can take a new a new look at food security and decide smart ways to to address these challenges. So, for example, just just in 2021 alone, we have the first ever UN Food System Summit. It was delayed a year because of the pandemic, but I think that it's really excellent timing to look at what are all the other challenges to food security beyond you know beyond farm production and how do we how do we endorse a smart approach? You have COP 26 this this year which we can look at food systems contributions to climate change, for example. So hopeful for the, for outcomes from those events. What is the thing that worries you the most? What worries me the most are the lifetime impacts of the food insecure that we're seeing today. Because I think that um, people yeah. might think that once those lines go away at food banks and food pantries, the problem is solved. That's not the case because you have lifelong health impacts, for example, of food insecurity and decreased nutritional status, impacts on education attainment, impacts on how much money people can earn, impacts on their health when they're adults. That worries me the most is what we're going to see in the lifelong impacts of, of food insecurity today. And that doesn't even include the psychological impacts. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. Those are intangible. You can't, you can't really measure the damage that that does and, and the impact that that could have on people going forward. I mean, it's yeah. just incredibly difficult situation. Caitlin, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter about this truly shocking situation we have in, in the United States and some of the hopeful plans for trying to alleviate the problems we're having with food insecurity. You've given me a lot of things to think about and a lot of hope going forward. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 